welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Now through the Word of God this morning as we continue in our exposition of Colossians. We come now to verses 9 to 12 of chapter 1. So let us hear the Word of God again together. Paul wrote, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. May God's perfect word have its perfect, perfect teaching moment in our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Teach us about prayer, Lord. Obviously, you've placed this section of Scripture before us to teach us about how to pray for the church, a master prayer from a master pastor himself, Paul. Speak to us well this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If I were to ask you to sit down with me and uh, simply to join me in prayer for Valley Forth Church, we sat down together and just committed to pray for the church in a moment. What do you think we would pray for? We might pray for more people to come to faith, which is a great prayer to pray. We might pray for growth and more people to come and attend and be part of the body here. We might pray for those that do come to become activated in ministry and find their way to serve. We also might pray for a greater impact on our community or in these days maybe an impact on our culture here in our city or across the country. Now we would and should pray for these things. They're good things. That'd be a good prayer. But are they the best things? Are they the things that the Spirit of God would want on our hearts? Or are there things that he would also want us to think of and pray about? So uh, while we've come to a passage about prayer, and it's a prayer that Paul prayed about a church, an everyday church just like ours, different century, different place, same people. It's a master prayer by a master pastor. And the the Word of God has it here so that we can understand how the Spirit of God guided this man of God to pray for the church of God. And in it, you're going to find the best things, things that won't just occur to you and me in a moment, but the things that God has placed here for every moment. These are timeless requests for the timeless church, for our church and for today's church. Churches all across the world, not just in our country. Timeless requests for God's timeless church, and that's how we'll look at it today. I learned a lot as I studied it this week. I learned a lot about what some missings are in my prayer for the church. 
Uh, I was surprised about some things too. So just like we always do, I basically look at preaching and Bible teaching as you learning a little bit after me. I learned it during the week. I labor in it during the week. And then we walk through the passage together. And that's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to do three, uh, take a look at three things today. First of all, there's a pattern to this passage. We're going to spend time and learn how it was constructed by the Holy Spirit through the mind of Paul and put into scripture. Bible commentators over the centuries have been intrigued with this passage. It's very unique in terms of how the Greek structures it. So we're going to look at the pattern of the passage to understand really how to study it. Then there's one driving passion point in the whole passage, as is often true with Paul. We're going to take a look at that. So take your Bibles now, open them up before you. If you've got an electronic version, you can look at that as well. We're going to look at three things. First of all, let's look at the pattern of the passage. You take a look at verse 9, and you can tell this is a passage about prayer. There are two dominating words right in the beginning that teach us about prayer. Paul says, and so from the day we heard, what had he heard? He'd heard that the Colossian church was being troubled by false teachers, that they were in danger of being moved away from the truth. And so Paul had always prayed for them for 10 years, but now he, he really accentuates his prayer and he's basically saying since the day we heard of your struggle we have really prayed for you and we have not ceased to pray for you what a powerful commitment Paul had for these people we have not ceased to pray for you and you notice two words for prayer the, the word pray there is a word from the Greek language that talked about every dimension of prayer it wasn't just making requests it was giving thanks to God it was also praising God for what he had done and was doing in the church. And so Paul gives us a little insight there. As you begin to talk about prayer in the church, we always want to rush to ask God to do things differently or to do more in the church. We've kind of got our own ideas about what the church needs. But the scripture here reminds us to start by praising God for what he's already doing in your church. That's a great value to have. Begin to praise him for what he's doing, because if it's his church, if it's one of his churches, he indwells her, he indwells the people, and therefore he's always about doing something good, isn't he? So that's where he's at. So he says, we worship God the Father for you. We thank God the Father for you. And then he uses another word, asking that you may be filled. So asking there is a classic Greek word, iteo, and it meant very specific, urgent requests. That's a prayer list. That's getting down with God and pleading with God to do certain things among a certain people. And that implies something too. Even though God is sovereign, even though he's in perfect control and he decrees what he de desires to do, in that sovereignty, he's built in a way for us to be a part of what he does through prayer. People often say, why should I pray if God has already decided what he's going to do? Answer, he's decided to include you in what he's going to do. And he's decided to use your prayer life to bring it about. Never forget that. Nothing happens in the church that God doesn't want to happen, but also nothing happens in the church unless God's people are praying. And they're, they're very specific. Things happen in churches because people pray. This is called intercessory prayer. 
And I want to tell you, through all my years in ministry, I've been in a lot of churches, pastored a lot of flocks and people. And I can tell you, I've never seen as strong a prayer, a, a spirit of intercessory prayer for a church over its history as I've seen at Valley Forth. This church, and you, well, let's give the Lord the glory for that, amen? Over 40 years, this church was birthed in prayer, and God's people have asked God to work here. And what has happened here has come because faithful people have gone to God with deep requests, and they've prayed this church through its life. They're continuing to do that. So you've done well. We can do better. Always we can, but you've done well. Just a little something I wanted you to hear from my heart. So it's obviously a passage about prayer, isn't it? Well, we go to the prayer and then he says, we, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. We pray to you, Lord. And then we're asking you, well, what is he asking for? If you take a look at it right at the right, just kind of first blush, it looks like everything else after verse nine is just a string of requests. Walk, manner, walk in a worthy manner, bear fruit, increase in the knowledge, be strengthened with all power. And it looks like it's just a line of requests one way after the other, and they're all the same. Actually, though, the structure of the passage will teach you a little something different. Now, I'm going to ask you to take a risk with me. I'm going to ask you to spend a moment, and I'm going to talk with you about the Greek of the passage. Now, we're going to get into a little Greek study here. Don't, put, don't let it put you to sleep or make you go somewhere else on your phone, please. For you Greek scholars that know Greek a lot more than I do, please don't correct me. And for you guys that only eat Greek, you don't read Greek, um, <laughs> trust me. So it's fascinating. The commentators over the centuries have really been interested in, in how this Greek is constructed. Basically, I'll just give you the, the overall picture. If you take a look at verse 9, there is what they call a main verbal construction. And that's where he says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Often Paul had one big idea, one big driver to his thought, and he led with it, and that's what he does here. What's the biggest thing he was praying about for this church? That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, then they show us that it's, construct, it's, it, it's connected to what they call a secondary result clause. May be filled with his will. That was the biggest request he had. But look at verse 10. So as to. That's called a purpose clause by the Greek scholars. And it means the purpose behind what? He's asking, why was he asking that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will? So they'd walk in a manner worthy. Do you see how your Bible comes together there? And then right under that, this is where it really gets challenging. There are four participles. What's a participle? Well, don't worry. It just, it's, a, it, it's a word that describes continuous action. It's a primary action word. And the participles under this just kind of, they, they flow out. And if you look at it in the Greek, which you're not, but I'm telling you, basically the participles are keep on bearing fruit, keep increasing in the knowledge of God, keep being strengthened, and keep on giving thanks. Participles always talk about action that keeps going on. That's interesting. No church arrives, nobody arrives. He wants you to keep increasing in the knowledge of God, keep bearing fruit. It's a lifestyle for you, and it's a lifestyle for the church. So that's where we're headed. So each of those kind of goes out under this. Put it all together. There's one big idea that he's praying for. He's asking that they may be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, verse 9. 
One big result should come out of that, that they should walk worthy of God. And then there's four examples coming out under that of what it looks like to live a life that's worthy of God. So that's how the passage flows. Let me, let me put it together or kind of capture it for you. There's one main verb, that's be filled with the knowledge of God. That's followed by what they call an infinitive of purpose or result, that they may walk worthy of God. Modifying that infinitive are four participles. They're all present tense. Keep on bearing fruit, keep on increasing, keep on being strengthened, and keep on giving thanks. And that's how the passage wakes its way out. And that's how I'll teach it. To put it another way, the main verb is the drivetrain. The infinitive walk worthy is the steering wheel. And the four participles underneath about how to do that are the four wheels that move your Christian walk forward. Does that work for any of you? Thank you. Are there any automotive people in the crowd today? Did I even get close to that? It took me a lot, a lot of time to find that explanation. One of the biggest things you need to learn about this right now from this is that always in the New Testament, listen, knowledge is, is connected to action. Knowledge is always something that should lead to action. As you grow in the knowledge of God, verse 9, you should always walk more worthy of God because of it. That was very unique for the Colossians because all the false teachers around them were Greek philosophers and their knowledge never led to action. It just led to more knowledge and they puffed up more and more, got more conceited and they just became people that knew a lot and did nothing. Not the New Testament way. So that's the pattern of the passage. Let's talk next about the passion of the passage. Let's look, let's look now at verses 9 and 10 more deeply. Remember, there's one main verbal idea that Paul starts with. Look at verse 9. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That was it. That was his biggest prayer for the church. Let me put it in a sentence for you. I think you'll see it on the screen as well. Paul prayed that they would be a church that was learning and living the word of God. That was learning and living the word of God. Notice, being filled with the knowledge of his will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That was his biggest request. That was on his heart. More than what happened in the church is who the church was becoming. Let's take a look at some more of the details. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God. That's an interesting Greek word. It meant filled up to the very top and essentially to the point where you're overflowing. That implies there's an endless source pouring into you, and that's the way it is for the Christian. God is infinite, is he not? His word is perfect, is it not? And it's taught to us by a wonderful Holy Spirit who's also infinite in his knowledge and his power. And so he's able to pour endless knowledge into his churches. No church will ever know everything there is to know on this side of heaven about God. We just won't. So as you walk with God in your Bible, what can you expect? You can expect every time you open its pages, the potential to learn another deep truth about God or to have something you already know deepened about God. Why? He's an infinite God. He's given you a perfect word that is taught by the infinite Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always has something more to bring you in your knowledge. I'm really glad about that because I don't know about you, but my life is one that finds endless situations that I don't yet know how to deal with. Maybe not you. I've got an exciting life. There's always a new problem. <laughs> it's great. 
Thank you. You live in my neighborhood. But the beauty of that is, as I'm walking through the word of God, I see the spirit of God granting me insight into my new situation and my new challenges because he will fill me with knowledge from the throne room. Secondly is the word knowledge. This is interesting. The Greeks had a lot of different words in their language to talk about knowledge because they were into knowledge. And yet the word here is is not the word that they used to describe content or data. It was the word ginosko, and many of you may know about this. Ginosko was knowledge that had come to be understood and experienced in life. It was knowledge, we, we've, you've probably heard a lot of preachers tell you, you know what, this needs to go 18 inches from your head to your, your heart. You need to put this into practice. This needs to become real to you, not just facts, but acts. And that's what Gnosko was. It was knowledge that had gone from the intellectual to the actual. You begin to put it into practice in your life, and you come to count on it. You really knew this was true. It's actually got a construction on it, epigenosko, which means deep known knowledge. So this is knowledge that you've actually learned to put into practice in your life and you discovered that God was right. That's the way to put it. I know what God God said, but then he put me in a situation where I had to count on it and it turned out God was right. So this kind of knowledge is, is very powerful in the life of the church and of the believers. So you can be filled with ever more discoveries from the Bible as you hear it preached well or as you study it well. That knowledge is not just stuff that you rack up into your doctrinal center, but it is meant to move into the depths of your life and and move into the actualities of what you do. And in a way, it goes from knowing to really knowing. You know know how we talk about that. Well, I thought I knew, but now I really know. That's gnosko. And so And it relates to God's will. Notice this, he says, be filled with the knowledge of his will. And some people might be saying, well, I'm glad in this sermon today, I'm I'm listening to this because I need to know whether I'm supposed to take that job next week. And you think this is talking about knowing what God wants you to do, what decisions he wants you to make. That's not the point. No, this is actually knowing how God wants you to live out your life in general, how, how he wants you to behave. It's not about deciding, it's about behaving. And that's why he gives this whole tree down next of things that he wants you to do. Well, if that's the case, another question comes to your mind. Okay, God wants me to know his will. He wants me to live it out in actuality in my life. How do I, how do I know the will of God? How do I know what he wants me to do? Easy answer through the word of God. Now you say, of course you would say that you're a preacher. It helps you drum up business and keep a job. Okay. Okay, I needed the word of God. I better come and hear the guy next week. No, I'm not telling you. The word of God is telling you. Because the scripture is filled with places that it says the way you learn the word of God and the truth of God and the will of God is through the scripture. 1 Peter 2, 2 comes to mind. Paul speaking, or rather Peter, excuse me, speaking to those that were struggling in their growth, particularly in their relational life. And he said, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. He wasn't complimenting them. He was saying, you guys are acting like baby Christians. Best way to get out of babyhood is to long for the milk of the word. What will it do? That by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter, like a good pastor, kind of brought a hard message, but with a little bit of grace. 
So the word of God is the source of how you learn the knowledge uh, that you need about God's will and about how God wants you to live. 2 Corinthians 3.18, now to Paul, writing to people in the church at Corinth who definitely needed to get with God's true will. And he said, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's talking there about looking into what the word of God reflects about the person of God. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's an interesting connection. Not only do you learn about the truth of God and the will of God through the word of God, you have an accompanying teacher you never read the Bible alone. Remember that. I'll repeat it. You never, if, if you're a born-again Christian, you never read your Bible alone. The Spirit of God is dwelling within you and working in your new mind to bring you truth, to open this book to you and to move it into your understanding. Jesus promised he would do this. He said in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. I don't think I can make it any clearer than he did. You're in a situation where the word of God is open to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Never forget to remember the presence of the Holy Spirit as you're in the word of God. He will be there. And this text says he will lead you into two things. Look at it. The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual means it's brought by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. This comes from God's throne room. God will teach you through the word of God and he'll give you two things, wisdom and understanding. What did the word wisdom talk about? Essentially, you, you, you spend time meditating in the text and you begin to understand what it means, the essence of it. Or you come under biblical preaching that's expository and you begin to get a sense of what it means. That's why I believe firmly that the spirit of God dwells over all preaching moments that are biblical. If some person gets up here and opens the word of God to you, he's not alone in his preaching. I pray not. I pray that the Holy Spirit is over, around, before, and behind me in every word that I preach as I open the word. It's the only way I could preach. It's the only way I could face the weight of teaching God's people God's word. I pray in the, in the front row of this church before every service and ask that the Spirit come and the Spirit teach and the Spirit work. I have no hope other than that. You're not here for whatever oratory I have or whatever thoughts I can come up with. It was said that every time Charles Spurgeon walked up the, the great pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, as gifted a preacher as he was, he had a habit with every step going up to that tall pulpit to pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He's at work right now. Spiritual wisdom, helping you know what the word means, and then he'll also deliver you understanding. That's a word that talked about how to live it out. In other words, he'll convict you. <laughs> He'll stir you. He'll move you into something that surprises you. He'll give you a challenge of obedience that you may have held back from. Who is that? Probably ain't you. Amen. Probably ain't your old dirty heart. It's probably the Holy Spirit in that new man of yours Amen. wanting to move forward.
Never forget who's with you in the scripture, in the reading or the teaching. And when he does this, he has this purpose. Verse 10, so you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What a phrase. The Greek meant to to bear the same weight as someone else. Okay? Think about that. God is holy. God possesses pure majesty. God is weighty. He bears a weight of glory. One day we'll live in that eternal weight of glory and receive it. But here's the thing. When you come to know God and what he's saying in his word and you begin to live out a life, that life ought to have some holiness to it. It ought to have some weight to it. People ought to know that you know a God who is holy and weighty and real. And here we are in a generation of Christians that has tried desperately to become as unholy and unweighty and trivial as the culture around it can possibly be. This is a message for the church today. He wants us to walk worthy of the weight of his holiness. He wants the world to know something about the weight of a majestic God by how you live and how you speak or what you won't say or who you are. And that comes by the Spirit of God filling you with the knowledge of God and moving in you. That's the passion of Paul. He wanted a church that would learn and live the Word of God and walk worthy of who he is. Now, let's go to the last. Let's take a look at the practical in the passage. Remember I said there's four dominating primary action words that build out what it looks like if you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the bottom part of verse 10, all the way through verse 12, show you what it's like to have that kind of a life that bears the weight in the presence of God. What's it look like to walk worthy of the Lord? Well, the first participle there is bearing fruit. That's the first set of action words. Just trust me. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's kind of a strange phrase to us, but it's very clear to the New Testament churches because Jesus instituted it in John 15. And it's found throughout the Bible. Bearing fruit is an image that's used for the church in a lot of ways. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talked about bearing fruit as describing winning people to Christ. Seeing the Spirit of God bear fruit of new life out of dead souls when the the gospel is preached. And he longed for that. Should a church desire that? Oh, yes, and we should desire it more here. Also, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 talked about the sacrifice of praise and bearing the fruit of praise to God. So what's a church that bears fruit? It's a church that exalts God in his truth, that praises him from sincere hearts. So a church that bears fruit leads people to Christ, regularly praises God in truth. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about a church that also learns to live a godly life under suffering. Hebrews 12 talks about the fact that if you're a child of God, he will discipline you and he will take you through trials and difficulties to chasten you out of your sin and more into dependency and obedience to Christ. That's his vision for you. That's what gives him glory. And when you allow yourself to be taken through that process with patience and endure it, he says at the end of it, 
there is a, the peaceful fruit of righteousness if you endure. So what's a church that bears fruit? It's a church that goes through difficult things, chastening things, hard things, trial-type things, and endures and doesn't give up, and God bears deeper fruit in her as the result of it all. And then finally, the clearest example of what it means to bear fruit is Galatians chapter 5, which is the, the, the deepest list, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, there it is. This is what God wants to do. He wants you to increase in this, bearing fruit. What's it look like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wow. That glorifies God because that's what his son looks like. <laughs> The father just loves the son. He adores him. And he wants to see the son reflected in his churches. So, bearing fruit. How do I put that in a phrase? Here's the practical. The first practical dimension Paul prayed for them is that they would be a church that continuously reflected Jesus. That's it. And I tell you what, people ask, well, how is the church going to grow? We're praying for more people to come. What can we do to make the church grow? Understandable question. Paul says the real question is, who should we be to make the church grow? As people are touched with the gospel, they're going to be drawn to Jesus. Will they see Jesus in the church? Here's the second one. The second action phrase is the word increasing in the knowledge of God. That's continuing in your life in the Word. Once you begin to understand the will of God, verse 9, there's endless discovery of who God is in the knowledge of God. Churches should grow in maturity, and the people in them should grow in maturity. What they know about God. Last week we got uh, news as a family about another grandchild on the way. It's really neat. Yeah, they're very excited. You can applaud that. Absolutely. Little boy, had the reveal. It was really cute. Our little granddaughter, we, we, they were set up by one of, one of my other daughters to, she poured out a little pan of blue paint for her and, and Claire and Tom had their eyes closed just standing there and they had t-shirts given to them, white t-shirts. And she got to go up there with her little hand and push a little blue hand mark on each of their tummies and then they opened their eyes and looked at each other. Okay, I'm done. It was awesome. So another grandchild. But you see, with the grand, grandchildren we already have, we're measuring stages of their development. You probably do this. If you don't, you're a rotten grandfather. <laughs> maybe you're maybe getting little marks on the door jam. That's the old way of doing it. The new way of doing it is finding out what new words, colors, numbers, and ideas they can now express. And how are they progressing through the intellectual development? And so we're tracking that. And we'll continue to track that because there are stages of development. Why? Because we know what we want to see eventually. We know the health and the achievement and the character we want to see in each of these. Don't you think God wants to see that in his children? That's why Peter said, don't stay babies. Grow up in the spiritual milk of the word. And, and so the scripture declares this. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are stages to your personal maturity that God wants you to move through. I also have to say that a lot of times... There are a lot of believers that don't move through these stages. They kind of stay childlike in their faith. That's unfortunate. John wrote about this in 1 John 2. 
I'll just read it briefly, verses 12 and 13. He talked about three levels of maturing that he hoped for in those believers. He said, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What are spiritual little children? Pretty much people that know the baby basics about salvation. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, you guys have passed. But he desired that you would go farther than that. The basics of the gospel, the the experience of regeneration and, and knowing that you're his and that you're his forever. There's other stages. He, he talks about another one. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Notice that because phrases describe how you get to the different stages. Let's go to the, the one at the end, writing to you young men and presumably young women. There is a movement from spiritual childhood, verse 12, into spiritual young adulthood. And that comes when you learn one thing, how to overcome the evil one. Later on, he talks about being strong and abiding in the word of God to do that. So what's the next stage for the baby believer? Learning to use truth in their life to say no to temptation and yes to what Christ wants them to be. It is a a warfare and it is learning to obey God more and let the, the, the pull of my sinful flesh draw me less. It's just that simple. It's moving into adulthood. It's making more of the right decisions. Today, we call it making good choices. Are you a person who has learned to do battle with your old way of life and is growing in your new way of life to the point where you're intentional about winning more than losing? That's a spiritual young adult, a young man or woman. And then finally, he writes to fathers in verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice there, there, are, there are people who are spiritual children who know they're forgiven. That's the basic of their knowledge. When you're a spiritual father or mother, you just simply know God so deeply. He is your life. Ginosko, you know him in experience. You know that you know things about him. And so when trials come, they don't strike you as deeply as they did in your earlier days because you simply know the Lord can handle it. The Lord is who he is. And in fact, you're more caught up with knowing him than you are with the comforts or events in your life. Wow. Stages. And he says, I want you to increase in your knowledge of God so you can move through the stages of spiritual maturity. Do you want to do that? Where would you place yourself in those three stages? Really good sermon thinking question. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about our church and been here a number of years. And they they said, you know, our church has a lot of spiritual fathers and mothers. We do have a lot of people that have really gone through a lot and they've held on to the Lord and they've taught themselves from the word and, and they really do ne- deeply know God. And we talked about how to help the fathers interact with the children. And that's the challenge of every pastor. And I agree with him. And I just thought, well, that's, that's what increasing knowledge of the word of God will do for you. That's why we're committed to biblical preaching and exposition and in our ministries and in our classes and our, everything we do, helping you understand the word of God. I think you want to get it. So how would I put that one? He wanted that church to continuously learn about God. That's the second practical thing. Two more and we're done. The third practical phrase, 
action set of words is verse 11, strengthened with all power in the Greek. According to his glorious might. Wow. Now, a lot of people look at this passage and Christians fall in two groups. One is a lot of Christians are intimidated by that because they're living in everyday life. And they would say, you know, pastor, I've known the Lord a long time. I've sought to be faithful to him, walk with him. But I can't tell you that I've had many moments where there's been huge moments of power in my experience. I haven't had miracles. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen his glory. I can understand that. Other Christians, however, become intrigued by this passage. And they would say at this point, now you're talking, pastor. That's the God I'm chasing after, a God who has glorious might, a God who works with all power. These are the folks that kind of keep changing the channel of where they go or what they watch because they're following after signs and miracles or they're following after intense worship experiences or they're, they're, they're looking for experience in general. And they believe that that's how God shows up. And when God shows up in that way, which by the way, I think the vast majority of that's probably not him at all but they're into the experience and they believe that's the greatest demonstration of God's power as when it's visible or supernatural or unusual. Do you know that's exactly the opposite of what this text teaches? Take a look at it. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for what? How does that power show up? Not in a, not in a, in a, in a, in a light show, but in your character for all endurance and patience with joy. In the quietness of your character battles is where this mighty power shows up. And I'll tell you right now, it's a lot easier to put on a flashy worship, worship service than it is to see a soul change from addiction into freedom, from binding anger into forgiveness. Oh, I work in souls. That's what I work in every day, all day. And souls are a mysterious and difficult and sin-bound thing that take the Spirit of God and His might over times a lot longer than you would expect to create His power. Two of the hardest things for people to do are staying under circumstances that are excruciatingly difficult or dealing with people who are excruciatingly painful to them. Did you know that that's both, both words here talk about that? May you be strengthened for all endurance is the Greek word hupomeno, and it meant to stay under a weight like a weightlifter when your arms are screaming to throw that off and for you to get out from under it. It means staying under the weight of difficulty. It's always used in the New Testament to talk about hard circumstances, hard times difficulties that won't end. What's your temptation? Be discouraged. Lash out at God. Not only that, but there are also difficult people in our world. That Greek word for patience came from two Greek words, macrothemia, which meant long to boil. Don't you wish you had that quality more often? There are some people that have a quick reach to our get it button. There are certain relationships, certain perspectives, certain opinions, certain difficulties. It, it is a work of God. It's definitely miraculous for us to go from self-involved people to people that can endure hard things 
and even love hard people. And here's the kicker. Look at the end. To do it with joy. <laughs> that's truly supernatural. But that's what God wants to do for his churches. And he'll put his churches in difficult and unending circumstances that are confusing or perplexing. And he'll often bring his church under the attack of very difficult people. If you're a, if you're a church of God, especially in our decaying society, you're going to be afflicted with people's opinions and attacks that will drive you to boil. And God says, I want you to learn through the power of the Holy Spirit, Colossians, to stay under your circumstances and to love difficult people with joy. All I can say is that takes Jesus. How would I put that into a phrase? He was praying that they would be a church that was continuously strengthened to endure difficult times and difficult people. Here's the last, the last participle, last dominating phrase, verse 12, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Inheritance, also a different kind of word, basically means heaven. Everything that Christ has bought for you and will provide for you throughout all of eternity I'm going there, but I don't qualify to go. Somebody else qualified me. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, that's the thing about inheritances. You can't earn them, and you really don't deserve them. Think about it. But he, in his matchless grace, takes every church and he's made us his own and we'll be the church together in heaven and he wanted that church to never stop giving thanks how would i put it in a sentence as i close he prayed they was they would be a church that would always be giving thanks to god for calling them his own so how would you and i sit down and pray for our church now <laughs> i hope we'd remember to pray for her growth and to pray for ministries to prosper and to pray for people to come to Christ and all of that. But I hope we'd also remember to ask God to make her a, lear- a church that's learning and loving the word of God, that's reflecting Jesus, that's learning more about Jesus, that's strengthened to endure for Jesus and that's ever thankful for Jesus. I'd kind of like to go to a church like that. When you... Now let's ask him to make us more and more a church like that. 